0: I'd like to start out with just kind of talking about the the state of times if you will and uh, the, you know the city that we live in we live in Woodstock of course but um, I'd like to talk about Atlanta the city of Atlanta along with the suburbs has a population of a little over six million people that's pretty big isn't it and you know oftentimes I'll have visitors from out of town visit and we'll be sitting down and watching the local news and often what they say to me is, I am just astounded over y'all's news. And I'm like, what do you mean? The crime, the violence that takes place in a big city like this. Boy, where I live, we don't have that kind of stuff going on. Well, you know, that caused me to investigate a little bit. And, you know, the total number of violent crimes, violent crimes... Year to date for 2021, as of one week ago, in just the city of Atlanta proper, not including, I said it's 6 million, including the suburbs, the city alone is only 400,000. Here's the crimes. Year to date, 44 murders, 55 rapes, 260 robberies, 841 aggravated assaults, 484 burglaries, 3,212 larcenies from autos. 1,672 other larcenies, and 1,185 auto thefts for a grand total year-to-date of 7,753 violent crimes in the city of Atlanta. Well, maybe you're like me and you've wondered, "Where, where does all this violence come from? Well, the true answer to that question, guess what? It's not a very popular one. The true answer to that question is that these things come out of our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. You know, and all kinds of excuses are given for why people sin. The classic is, the devil made me do it, Right? Or how about this? This is very common as well. A husband is arguing with his wife, and he says, well, if you hadn't have said that, I wouldn't have fill in the blank, right? But at the end of the day, guess what? We have no one to blame for our sins other than ourselves. We sin because we choose to sin, Because we're forced, we're not forced into it by the devil or any other external power. We have no excuse. It's us. Man sins because we decide to sin and then we do just that. One author has said this sin is the inner kink in the works that skews perceptions, skews goals, skews our choices. It erases God from his universe. The Bible comes at it this way in Genesis 6, 5, speaking of man, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That doesn't mean that every one of us walks around committing murder and rape and at every moment we're looking for a crime to commit. It means that there is something fundamentally bent in what every one of us are like. Psalm 58, 3 says it like this, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Ecclesiastes 9.3 captures that idea well. It says, quote, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. We could say it like this. There is a madness in our hearts in the way that we live. There is a kind of moral madness that makes us erase God. Violent crimes against others is nothing more than the manifestation of the wicked, sinful heart." We've all been angry at someone in our lives, right? I'm sure if you, like me, grew up in a house full of siblings, I'm sure at some point you had that nostrils nostrils flaring, full-on, full-fledged indignation. And every mom and dad said, yeah, I see that, right? You may not have really physically murdered one of your siblings, but if you've ever been angry at someone, Jesus says what? That you have committed murder. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But that's what he teaches us. Matthew five twenty one and 22 says, have you, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder, murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Well, the anger Jesus is speaking of here is not that uh, what we call righteous anger. That's anger over God being dishonored. And we should be angry at those things. But rather, he's talking about the selfish, personal anger against another person. This, however, didn't start in Jesus' day. We actually find it in Genesis chapter 4. And I invite you to turn there with me Genesis chapter 4. Way back there is when it started, right? It didn't start with us, it started way back in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to give a brief background to that before we look at the text. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit, God cast them out of the garden and into the world where they would be subject to sickness, pain, suffering, and eventual death. But think of the contrast for them from the Garden of Eden, a place where they could enjoy the presence and the fellowship with God. God walked with them daily in the garden, an environment of lush trees with abundant fruit gorgeous flowers, a garden with no weeds mixed in. Gibbs Gardens up here in Jasper's very pretty, but it was nothing like this, right? This is a, just a gorgeous, gorgeous place to live. Just think Adam could go out and pick roses for his bride without the concern of getting stuck by a thorn. This place was a place of beauty and comfort. But once outside the garden, I'm sure they realized very quickly that things were different. Kind of like Dorothy saying to Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Now, because of the curse of sin, they're living on cursed ground. Weeds in the flower gardens, thorns on the roses. Instead of freely eating from the garden, Adam will now gather by the sweat of his brow. Can you imagine what it would have been like working in the garden without an ache or a pain? Without sweating as you cultivate the crops? Without hay fever, wouldn't that be awesome? It won't be long. I'll be sniffling. There's something bloom soon that just drives me crazy with allergies. None of that was going on in the garden, but sin caused them to be removed from the garden. Chapter three ends with paradise being lost and forfeited, and in chapter four, what we're going to see is two hearts revealed. One a heart of belief. And the other, a heart of unbelief. So let's read Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, look again at verse one there. We, we have the first human being ever being born. Eve delivers him and says, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Keep in mind, she had no information as to what was going to take place when the time came for her to give birth other than the fact that it was gonna be very painful. She'd learned that from chapter three and verse 16, which says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain, you will bring forth children. There were no birthing classes for her to attend. There were no doctors, there were no nurses, there were no midwives, but look what she does. She does, however, after delivering, recognize God's faithfulness and allowing Cain to be born. We see this in her acknowledging that he was born with the help of the Lord. In verse 2, Cain's brother Abel is born. It says, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. The text doesn't give us the age difference between them. What Moses is doing and writing here is giving us a running commentary, just, just touching on the background to get us quickly to the main point. And I gotta tell you, that drives me crazy. It just drives me crazy. I've been accused of missing my calling in life Um, I've I've been told that I should have been a detective because I like the details. And Moses just doesn't give us a whole lot here. I want all the information. I'd like to know things like where outside the garden exactly were they? What was their house like? What what did the ground outside the garden contain now that it was full of weeds and everything? How far from a water source were they? I mean, after all, one of them's a farmer. They got to have water. The other one has animals. You got to have water. How old was Cain when Abel was born? look how Moses moves us incredibly fast. He goes from birth to work in one and a half verses. Boom, boom, right? And and look at the end of verse uh, four. I mean, I'm sorry, verse two. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we see that work was not a new concept. Obviously, Adam had worked from the point where God had given him responsibility before sin to cultivate and, and keep the garden. We read in chapter 2, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Well, after his sin, Adam continued that occupation, but now he's working outside the garden. And as we've already said, the ground was very different at this point. And now keep in mind, there are four people on the earth at this time. Four. Four. So I'm sure that Cain and Abel took on chores around the house at a very early age, right? Uh, Cain was a crop farmer, Abel, Abel was a shepherd. We should not look at one occupation as being better above the other. I'm sure just like you and I, they're working the job that best fit their talents and their desires. Verses 3 and 4 tell us these. They says in verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So they're working, they're living together, and now we see that both brothers are worshiping. Well, the detail, want to know kind of guy, where did they learn to worship? Well we can rightly assume that they would have learned to worship from their parents. After all Adam and Eve in in chapter 3 verse 21 had seen God himself provide a sacrifice for them after they fell into sin. And the words here that it came about in the course of time can be translated at the end of a certain period of time. And what this is doing is it indicates that that God had a specified time of worship and they both came at that time. There must have also been a specific place to come and worship, perhaps an altar had been built and used by Adam. The text isn't explicit in giving us answers to that, but some of the questions that might be coming to our minds for guys like me is we've got to be really careful that we're not speculating, right? We're not reading into the text what's not there, but what is clear is that the material for the offering each brought was from their chosen occupation, Wouldn't you expect a farmer of crops to bring something from the ground? And we'd certainly expect the shepherd to bring something from his flock. The Hebrew word that's used here for offering is the word mina, which in other portions, like in Genesis 32, 20, it's translated present. So we could say that the brothers were bringing a present to the Lord. God doesn't make a distinction between those two offerings. I think that's really important for us to, to think about. Fruits and vegetables are not an inferior offering compared to an animal offering. In fact, many Old Testament offerings called for fruits and vegetable offerings. Leviticus 2, 1 and 2 says, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it, To Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So they both brought an offering, but how were they received? And we see how they were received in verses four and five. And the Lord had regard for Abel. And for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So the big question is, why? Why did the Lord have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's? It's interesting, if you look closely at this, that Abel is mentioned first and then secondly, his offering. And I think the connection is very important for us to see. His offering is not an outward act but it corresponds with the inner motivation of his heart. In his inner heart motivation, he shows us that he displays a heart of belief, a heart of faith. And here we have our our first heart revealed. Abel has a heart of belief, a heart of faith. But what about Cain and his offering that he had no regard for? Well, since we're unable to tell from the text to see anything wrong with Cain's offering, one commentator has suggested this, quote, Perhaps the fault is an internal one, an attitude that is known only to God. The New Testament shows us that that is exactly the case. The New Testament offers us some invaluable information about the offering. Hebrews 11.4, here it is. By faith Abel offered to God his better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So it says, by faith Abel offered to God. Well, where did he get the faith? To do something by faith means that you're doing something in response to a word from God. Cain and Abel were responding in worship to God, And that God had somehow told them, maybe he used Adam and Eve, probably, mom and dad, to do this. Well, where did the faith come from, however? Romans 10, 17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Abel brings his offering by faith, and Cain does not. Why? Why does Cain not bring his offering with faith? What's going on with Cain? Why didn't he bring his offering with faith? He knew to bring an offering. He brought an offering. Why didn't he have faith? Well, Remember, I said a minute ago that faith means that you're doing something in a response to a word from God. And it appears that Cain was responding the same way Abel was. He comes to worship, but something is wrong with his worship. What is his internal fault? What's really going on in his heart? Only God really knows our hearts, right? That is a terrifying thought to me, that only God really knows our hearts. We can't even know the inner recesses of our own hearts, our own souls, what's really going on. And the Bible teaches that very clearly. Only God can. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. So God sees Cain's heart and knows exactly what is wrong with his worship. He has a heart problem. Instead of a heart of belief like his brother, Cain displays to us a heart of unbelief. In these brothers, we see two hearts revealed, one of belief and one of unbelief. Cain was coming to worship God in his own way, not by faith. Jude calls this the way of Cain. He comes to worship God in his own self-righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly how to come to worship God. But he wants, the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to come by faith. When we come by faith, we're coming in obedience to God. We are coming in the manner God has prescribed. This is the way Abel came to God, and God had regard for him. Cain, on the other hand, came to God in his own way. His heart drove him to worship God in his own way. Cain believed in God. He brought an offering to God, but because of sin in his heart, he did not bring his gift with faith. We could say it like this. He recognized God, but he only partially obeyed. He only partially obeyed God. He recognized God, but only partially obeyed him. He evidently thought that he could approach God in whatever way he wanted. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Uncountable numbers of people come to worship God all the time in this very same way, which really is the definition of false religion. Listen, trying to come to God in any other way than the way he has prescribed is false religion. It is false worship. Now, I'm sure, like me, you you meet people who are living a a life of immorality, doing whatever their flesh desires, and yet they claim to be Christians all day, every day, right? I was talking to someone recently, and they said to me um, that many people think him that your your form of christianity it's just too rigid it's just way too rigid you know i, I want to do whatever i want to do and then go to church on sunday and think that that's all i have to do guess what that's the way of cain the bible warns us against doing things in our own way proverbs fourteen twelve says there's a way which seems right to a man but it's the end is the way of death Just in case you missed it, Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. That, folks, is the way of Cain. John MacArthur says, Cain did not mind worshiping God as long as it was on his own terms and his own way, and God rejected his sacrifice and rejected him. Cain's disobedience of God and setting up his own standards of living were the beginning of Satan's world system. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and into a life of continuous self-will, which is the heart of worldliness and unbelief. Think about the situation we're talking about here. The third person on this planet wants to do life in his own terms. Here we are, 2021, right? Not much has changed today, has it? I've often joked around and said that, you know, ministry would be a lot easier for me if I lived somewhere like Idaho, right, where not everybody's a Christian. Here in Georgia, in the heart of the Bible Belt, well, everybody's saved. What we have is people doing Christianity in their own way and thinking they're in a relationship with God. And on top of that, the majority of churches propagate that belief. Guess what? That's the way of Cain. The Bible warns us in Jude 11, it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. One commentator calls Cain the prototypical model of one who departed from God's truth. 1 John three 3.12 tells us what's really going on with Cain. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. He's a child of Satan. And he responded with jealous anger. Look at verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now his heart is openly manifesting itself. It was all inward. Now it's openly manifesting. And instead of being concerned about a remedy, remedying the situation and pleasing God, he was very angry. He wasn't just angry. He was very angry. Have you ever thought about what anger really is? I mean, what is it? Well, Webster says anger is a strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a real or supposed wrong. The Dictionary of Biblical Languages defines anger as this, a strong feeling of displeasure with a focus of an action to follow. Well, our pastor, Shane Culler, to me, has the best definition. Here's what Shane's definition of anger is. Anger is essentially a self-centered distortion of God's justice. Anger is an attempt to place yourself at the center of God's system of retribution. It is to assume an essentially self-centered view of right and wrong where everything, your sense of what is just and right, bends towards your own self-centered interest and you leave no room for God's justice and God's wrath to work itself out. That's so good, I'm going to repeat it. Anger is essentially a self-centered distortion of God's justice. Anger is an attempt to place yourself at the center of God's system of retribution. It is to assume an essentially self-centered view of right and wrong, where everything, your sense of what is just and right, bends towards your own self-centered interests, and you leave No room for God's justice and God's wrath to work itself out. Well, here in verse five, we have Cain showing his corrupt heart to the Lord, but the Lord's not done with him. The Lord graciously asked Cain to examine himself. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? Well, he's holding Cain accountable for his actions. Look at verse six. He asked Cain, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? God inquires, not because he can't see Cain's heart, but in order that Cain might know the Lord's displeasure is due to his own sin. God wants Cain to reflect on his self-justification of his anger. And just like with Adam in chapter 3, God mercifully gives Cain an opportunity to examine himself and to repent. God asks him another question in verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? I actually like the uh, Christian Standard Bible translation of that verse. It says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? The question shows us the basic simplicity of a right relationship with God. If you do what is right. This means if you behave, if you conduct yourself in the right way. Basically, the Lord is telling Cain to turn from his unfounded anger and to offer true worship to God. The context demonstrates that to do what is right does not imply justification by works. That's not what we're talking about. But that forgiveness comes only to those who repent. God is placing the responsibility on Cain himself to repent and be reconciled. God knows Cain's wicked heart and gives him the opportunity to do the right thing. That's a sign of grace, is it not? Here he has sinned horribly, and God's still extending a sign of grace to him. God is telling him, there's no need, Cain, to be angry with me and to envy your brother. God even shows him what's going to happen if he doesn't. That's another sign of grace. If he does not do the right thing, God says in the end of verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So sin here is pictured as an animal waiting for its victim. Guess what? It's very, very patient sometimes in waiting for its victim. It's very, very patient and knows the exact moment to lunge. And its, it's, it's desire is for Cain. It's ready to pounce on him and, and, and devour him. What in the world now? we got to answer this question. What in the world can Cain do about his sin's desire To consume him. There's still a moment, still a moment of choice left for Cain. God again graciously tells him what he can do. He says, But you must rule over it. Here's the age old struggle of good and evil, right? Any one of us filled with envy and strife is prayed for the evil one. Don't think Cain's out there on an island by himself. Any one of us are right there with him. So, how is Cain to rule over his sin? He's not to give in to sin. Instead, he is to master it, to rule it. It's important for us to realize that Cain does have a choice. He is capable of making the right choice. If that weren't true, then God wouldn't have said, if you do what what is right, that, that would be meaningless for God to say that. He tells Cain he must rule over it. He must master it. Well, how about us? Here we are all these years later. Are we to rule over our sin? Are we to master our sin? Absolutely. And the Apostle Paul gives us some very clear instructions on that. Some very clear instructions on how to rule over our sin. Flip with me real quick. You can hold your finger there in uh, Genesis 4. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And let's read uh, verses... 11 through 14, clear instruction on how to rule over sin in our lives. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. What does that mean? That means to think about it, count it as real, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not... Circle that, right? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Isn't that wonderful? We have the responsibility there to not let that sin rule over us. Listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. Quote, but as unholy lusts are not quite rooted out in this life, it must be the care of the Christian to resist their motions, earnestly striving that through divine grace, they may not prevail in this mortal state. There is strength in the covenant of grace for us. Sin shall not have dominion. Sin may struggle in a real believer and create him a great deal of trouble, but it shall not have dominion. It may vex him, but it shall not rule over him. Cain, however, did not do what was right, which was to repent of his sinful, unbelieving heart. And sin did indeed pounce on him, and sin indeed did destroy him. Look at verse 8. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, there's numerous suggestions as to what Cain told Abel, but we can't know for sure, so we're not even going to go there. But what we are sure of, because the text clearly tells us, is that Cain rose up and killed Abel. He murdered his own brother, his own brother. Four people on the planet, and he eliminates one of them, his own brother. why he 's reacting to being confronted with his sin? He killed his brother because he 's reacting to being confronted with his sin. God confronted him about his reaction to the rejection of his offering, and that 's how he responded. Remember how Adam responded when God confronted him he He made all kinds of, of excuses. he blamed his wife and he bl- even blamed God, but he didn 't kill anybody. Cain, however, couldn't restrain his resentment and bitterness, and he vents his anger and ables the one who gets it. But you know what? You and I are foolish if we suppose that we're incapable of just as serious a sin. Listen, an evil desire is the first step towards a more wicked act. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And if we do not flee from evil desires, we may find ourselves giving up control to the enemy. Listen, we we've got to understand that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we as believers are enabled to live lives of holiness. And we see here in verse nine that God didn't finish with Cain yet. He says in verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Think about this for a minute. Here's God, the creator, talking with Cain. Would that not be a kind of cool conversation? We will have that one day. But think about that. He's on planet Earth and God's talking with him. Cain certainly could not have understood much about God, right? He didn't have a clue of God's omniscience because he flat out lies to God. He says, I don't know. Someone may lie to you and I, and we probably won't know the difference. But God knows everything perfectly when? All the time, right? Listen to Psalm 139, 1 through 4. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all. So regardless of what Cain thought, he wasn't fooling God and he's moving further And further and further away from God, showing his true colors, showing his true allegiance to Satan, the father of lies. At this point, Cain's spiritual blindness is on full display. To think that he can escape the scrutiny of omniscience is total deception. It's total insanity. Almighty God sees the unbelief of Cain's heart and dishes out punishment in the following verses which we don't have time to look at today. But what we need to see is that in Abel, there is an acknowledgement of sin and of his need of a savior, and he revealed a heart of belief to his God. In Cain, there is neither. Cain neither acknowledged that he was a sinner or that he needed a savior. And because of his lack of, of faith and dependence on self, God rejected him and his offering. Well, guess what? There's a warning here for us to heed. Listen, God will not accept our religion. He will not accept our works. He will not accept anything we can do to attempt to save ourselves. The only thing that God will accept is what he himself has already provided he will accept nothing but faith in the atoning sacrifice and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what that means? That means that the way to heaven just got pretty narrow, right? It's only through Christ It got narrow, but it got understanding. Forget all that other stuff. Only through Christ. Cain revealed his lost condition through an unbelieving heart. He refused to come to God God's way. And in short, what he did was he rejected the gospel of grace and and God rejected him. So here's another point for us all to ponder as we close. What does your heart say about you? Have you believed the gospel? Are you trusting Jesus and what he did as the only hope you have for salvation? Or is your hope in other things? Things like good works, religious deeds, a good life, church membership, baptism, and the list could go on and on, right? But none of those will ever save us. God's plan is very simple. And he lays it out in multiple places in Scripture. Here's my favorite one, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, if you're here today and you've never done that, please know that the word of God is very real. There is a very real heaven That believers in Jesus Christ, those that have trusted him as their Savior and Lord, will spend all of eternity with him. All of eternity with him. But just as real as heaven is, there's a hell. That those who haven't trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior will spend all of eternity in torment in hell, separated from a holy, loving God. So if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, I I invite you to do that this morning. I invite you to go to the reception at the end of the service down the hall, talk to one of the pastors there, and they can more fully explain the gospel to you. Well, let's pray. Holy Father, your word proves that the entire world is guilty before you. And Lord, we know that if left to ourselves, we would perish as we truly do deserve, We desperately need you. We are fallen human beings, and therefore, Lord, we could never achieve righteousness on our own. And your precious word teaches us how vile sin is, how vile we are, and how hopelessly in bondage to evil we are, and how miserably worthy of judgment our sins have made us. God, we we understand your hatred for sin, your holy. Your law clearly manifests your holy nature to us, leaving us stripped, barren, and guilty so that we can only run to you for mercy. And Lord, your word bids us to come boldly and it reveals you to be a God of boundless compassion and grace, a God who eagerly forgives all penitent believing sinners. So Father, I pray this morning that for those who may be here that don't know you, that you would move in their hearts and call them today. And we thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ that continually, faithfully, and justly cleanses us from all our sins. Father, please multiply your grace in our lives today. Make us sensitive to the approach of sin and temptation. Increase our loathing of all that is evil and heighten within us a godly fear that restrains our fleshly tendencies. Lord, please overwhelm our hearts with the purifying power of your word and your spirit. Fill us with compassion, perfect your love in us, arousing us to thirst for holiness, and kindle a passion within within us to serve you. We pray in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.